This is Whiskey and Words. I'm David Olson, and I'm joined today by writer John Campbell. Good morning, John. Hello. Uh, John's here to share one of his stories with us and discuss a bit about the process and about origins and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throughout, we're also going to have a drink of Lafroig, 10-year-old. Lafroig. Which will be lovely and smoky for a Saturday morning, I think. So welcome, John. How are you today? You I'm good, thank you. Very good. Very good. So we met a little while ago now in the, the writing group and hopefully I'm making famous by now talking about it so much and I've heard you share some of your work and I, you know, I'm a big fan and you cover a lot of different topics which are quite exciting uh, and the story you've got today is quite a nice sort of personal kind of family piece isn't it which is quite exciting so when it comes to writing where did you where did you start what did you start with what type of, I've heard you read uh, for the stage I've heard you read Short prose, mm. I've heard some different things. What's your kind of, what's your favorite thing, but also where did you start with it? My impetus for writing comes mostly from something that needs exercising, I think. Often derived from a mixture of therapy <laughs> and subjects that come up really in that. Um, I, I work in mental health, I've always had an interest in psychotherapy and psychology and so uh, the reason I write is because I'm interested in in relationships and my own process I don't consciously do it to be published or um, I just feel like there's something I want to put together really and and explore and I love sharing it with the group really it's part of that Um, the format I think I tend to write prose more to be honest Um, and that feels a little bit more comfortable. Um, when, when we first met, I'd try to play, um, which uh, it was an interesting experiment for me, but I had less of an opportunity to create a world, I think, which I quite like to do. Yeah. Uh, now I feel more comfortable with how prose plays. Yeah. I think you're right. There's, there's always there's a story to be told, and different people have got different stories, and you just kind of want to get it out there. It's quite a... It's a good reason to start writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I think that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, trying those different things and the, the, the stage play, you didn't want, you want to go down that route as much. You want to move into the prose. I enjoyed that stage play, though. I did. You're right. It was good. Um, <laughs> that encouragement, Dave. Yeah. I think it's one of those few things. Like, I always talk about, I spend more time on this podcast talking about things that I don't write than I, what I do. Um, mm. But it's one thing I've always wanted to try is, is writing for stage. Because I've written short film scripts and I've written prose and various other things, but I don't understand the stage. I think that's why I can't really write for it. Yeah. So did you have a, did you have a background in I've acting done, and performing? Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of amateur dramatics from a young age, and uh, I think I understand the stage, but uh, it's quite hard to write a play, nevertheless, because uh, you never know quite how it's going to be read or performed. There's a text. But each performance is different, what what comes out. And actually seeing your words come alive or read by someone else and the many, many different ways that they can be delivered. I think that's an interesting and exciting way to go with writing, which is different from prose. Yeah. Um, I'm a control freak, however. I probably <laughs> quite prefer to uh, either direct my own plays or writing prose actually probably gives me a bit more control. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, was, I was saying before that the, <laughs> when we were talking about reading through your work that you sent mm-hmm. across me for today's reporting. Um, and although I'd heard you read this story before, 
Of course, when I read it, it sounded very different. Right. And I imagine, but you know, in this, in, I think your the the emotion behind it and the sort of uh, the weight of what you're telling still lands the same way. Just of course, I'm reading it in my voice as opposed mm-hmm. to what I'm used to hearing it in yours. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're right. If you're if you're writing for the stage and suddenly you give it to somebody who is interpreting it in their own voice, then it's very different because mm-hmm. they're going to then people play out their version, I guess. Whereas at least with prose, you hand it to them and if they interpret it differently, it's in their own head. And they're not yeah. going to be changing the message behind it again. Mm-hmm. Well, would you care for a drink? Yes, okay. As you're pouring, uh, as I explained, whiskey is very relevant for the theme of the story, which is about a relationship between a father and a son. And I am a Campbell, and uh, my father is Scottish, and have grown up Burns nights every year. In fact, we're not too far from Burns, are we? we that's the 26th, I think, so we're the 14th. Yeah, so having drinking this every year, really, and kind of uh, what you inherit from his culture and uh, what you do with what you inherit is uh, how far you you wear his identity or your own is the theme of the story. So the whiskey is very relevant. Good to hear. I'm going to have a wee bit of, of water course, of with course. it. Cheers. Cheers. bad i always started off saying that i didn't like isla whiskies too smoky too much it's there very smoky, isn't it? um and then i have had more as time has gone on and i just like them more and more mm. which is just it's insane how your palate changes and suddenly like actually no i, I do actually quite like that yeah i quite like it as, a, as an evening drink because it's got kind of smoky kind of warming winter feeling to it i always think but that's, that's- that's probably the most successful whiskey drinking I've had for some time. It's a good couple of years since I've drunk. That's really nice. I get yeah. the smokiness for sure. I think they uh, they smoke the peat, don't they? Mm-hmm. The peat. The peat. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's uh, it's going down well. Yes. Well, hmm. I'll gently sup it during our journey. <laughs> We're all on a journey, Dave. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so, speaking of that journey, I, do you want to take us on it right now? Yes. I'll, uh, well, I'm going to read you a uh, a short story called In His Hands. I hold his hand. I have time to study it in close detail. The chunky wedding ring seems heavy on his finger and has worn the skin hard on his palm underneath. There is a fringe of hair on the back of his hand. A couple of moles. I suppose I knew they had always been there, but this is the closest to his hand I had been since I was a boy. The hand toiled, had been covered in engine grease, had scrambled around in mud on the Falkland Islands. This hand had held a gun, pulled a trigger, raised a salute and fixed a bayonet. This hand had held me, bathed me and stroked my hair when I was sick. This hand had beaten me, grabbed me, thrown me around and held me down when I tried to get away. I run my fingers over the veins which cascade down the back of it, proud over the tendons and the knuckles. This hand has a life and a presence of its own, despite the body now being old, wizened 
and dying. It is the closest I have come to this hand. Just down from the hand is his father's watch. Time ticking down through the generations, the gold warm and the face worn by years before his own. It seems to dwarf him, clunky about the bones where his hand no longer has the muscle it once had. I could slip a finger between the strap and the arm. My father had been obsessed with the time his whole life. The hour of the family departure barked at dawn before our holiday, a countdown every ten minutes thereafter until we have to have our asses out the door. We always left an hour early in case we broke down too. Not that we ever did. Dinner was at 1700 hours every night, and there was never enough hours in the day for him to get done what he needed to get done. Yet he still found the time to take me for a bike ride every Sunday, to stop at my favourite park, and to sit together with some sandwiches by the duck pond. Now he's running out of time. They say he only has a few weeks to live. I squeeze his hand, but nothing comes back. The ventilator and heart machine ticks on indifferently. I study his face and shut his eyes, flickering in a dream behind the lids. There wasn't much he didn't see when I was younger. He could tell from my face when I was lying, whether I had cleaned my room or not, folded my trousers, or snuck out after everyone had gone to bed. He had ears and eyes everywhere, constant surveillance in the name of my safety. We lived in a state of his fear, the latest bomb warnings from Ireland, behind barbed wire and camouflage. Once, playing war with the street kids, I borrowed his field jacket and proudly displayed his shardant stripes to all my mates, and wielded my plastic gun like I fucking owned the street. Then I was caught in the bushes by him. The enemy hurled me back home and lectured me on the danger of terrorists who would love nothing more than the prize of a squaddy brat. Then I was just following orders which I didn't believe in, but didn't dare challenge. It was only now, in intensive care, fighting for his life, that the dangers of his world felt more real to me. How frail and worn down he looks in his hospital bed. A shadow of the soldier which inhabited my memory. I continue to hold his hand and I squeeze it again. A tear wells behind his left eye. I don't remember him crying. Not even at his dad's funeral. As I stood aged five beside him. Later he told me that he was numb that he felt he had to be strong for his mother who was left behind. He didn't cry, but he had a lot to say about his father, a soldier and a veteran before him. Sunday afternoon films about World War II were always, always inspected by tales of my granddad being captured in the war, jumping from a plane and all the technical details of the operation. I could tell from the level of detail and the intrigue that his father's story mattered to him. He could tell you hour by hour, movement by movement, what had happened to the regiments. 
Though he survived the war, every remembrance Sunday my dad would attend church and grieve for his father as though he had died during the war, along with the comrades of his own conflicts. He spent hours polishing his medals and his shoes the night before every year. Even after he had left the army, he polished his shoes like they were boots, you know. I can remember those boots. The ritual of lacing them up in the morning, the thick, heavy thud of them down on the floor, coming down the hallway to me. Playing on the floor, once, those boots had destroyed the station from my train set and bent the toy soldiers waiting to board the next troop transporter. The bent officers joined the mutilated soldiers he had decapitated or torn limb from limb with a lawnmower in the garden. He would polish my school shoes every weekend just like his boots, with spit, with an old toothbrush in the back garden. Every Monday I would kick as many walls as I could on the way to school and scuff them again. I suppose I wanted to kick him, but I wouldn't dare. So that was the closest I got. There are no boots now, no medals, and no uniform. There is an unwashed old body, an unceremonious hospital gown with white sheets and a bedpan. He wouldn't be watching out for me anymore. He wouldn't be standing guard, but he wouldn't be trapping me in his sight to protect me from the dangers of his imagination either. The doctors are observing him every hour, and they think his lungs are about to pack up. It would be so easy to up the morphine, to turn off the machine, and to have done with this man. My finger lingers on the morphine dial, and a shot of adrenaline rushes through my veins at the power I have to end him. I stop myself. I stand up to get a coffee and stretch my legs and then I catch sight of my face hovering in the window among the flashing lights of the machines next to me. I can see his cheeks, his eyes, and the shape of his skull looking back at me. I sigh and walk out the room. He will die, but that soldier lives on inside me, ready to defend himself and dig in against my attack. I walk down the corridor to the coffee machine, listening to the sound of his life support behind me, and trying to work out what to do with the watch that he has left me in his will. Thank you for that. I really enjoyed that story. And again, I always say that when I've listened to what is quite a sad tale, and I feel like I need to clarify that I enjoyed the tale and not necessarily the sadness within it. Uh, no, but I, I like that a lot. And I think that some of the things that stood out for me, one in particular was the kind of the mix of emotions in your main character. And the way it's sort of, they're both half, almost it seems kind of triumphant and also quite broken at the same time with it. And so the sort of managing that kind of balance, did you find that a challenge? Or were there any sort of earlier drafts or versions of the story where your character kind of went either way? The reason for writing was that conflict between the compassion and the anger. So, uh, in a father-son relationship, and 
both were there from the start. And I, the bit with the morphine at the end and the finger on the morphine dial is that temptation to be sadistic to end him. But the real pain is the fact that he identifies with, can see the father within. And I didn't have, there's some changes, but not many earlier drafts. Um, and simply to write a rant, which is full of rage, or uh, a bleeding heart for, for a dead father, would, it wouldn't have brought out that and the interest, the complexity of that relationship. Yeah. For me. No, I agree. I, I agree. I think that the way you the way you balance those together makes it a, a really compelling tale. And if it was just someone reeling against their, you know, their overbearing father, or crying their eyes out, it wouldn't have that same yeah. pull, would it? I don't think. No, and you've done it very well. No, that works. I think the 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 focus on the hands mm-hmm. was the thing as well. Obviously, that's how it starts. I quite like that blend of kind of toughness and sensitivity. The idea that this man has been toiling in the mud, he's been stroking his hair. You know, there's there's that kind of mm-hmm. that balance between those two things as well. So, did the story start with the relationship, or did it start with the idea of that moment with the hands? And the it started with that moment. Okay. Um, I, I suppose I, I have had my own difficulties with my uh, my body and my identity and um, noticing that certain parts of my own body resemble other people but noticing that my hands are quite like his um, and I used to wear a wedding ring and I can kind of still sort of see there's still a little bit of <laughs> it feels like this it looks like there's a hard bit of flesh still where the ring used to be yeah um, and then thinking about what I've inherited from my father and uh, it's a very very physical like I carry this hand around with me every day <laughs> yes um, and that's 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 what it came from really and and then grew into into thinking like you say like hands are uh, instrumental there's a there's a potency but there's a care as well and it's that mix between how the same same hand same object is used in both ways yeah and it grew from that yeah, I think it's it's interesting to find the inspiration coming from something like that because it's something that I think a lot of people uh, kind of respect as truth. You know, you, you have similarities with family and all the rest of it, but it doesn't always inspire a further thought about it. You know, I I, I bear a great resemblance to to my father, but I don't often think about what that means for me because of the fact that I look in a mirror and I can see him. I don't. You know, I, I, that part of the story, that looking and catching that reflection, seeing the same things. Yeah. You know, I have that, and I. But I don't. I don't. I think it's it's easy to to pass by that and just be kind of like, oh yeah, resemblance, no big deal, and not to think about the weight that could carry, especially if you uh, like with this character, if you have quite mixed feelings mm. towards that person, mm. and then you are mm. bearing that as well. I can imagine that being, you know, quite a challenge for people, but one that people don't always consider. Yeah. Yeah process of how, how you become yourself your own man um, when you've inherited a lot yeah. from your own parents that's, uh, that's the stuff that is often the impetus for a lot of my writing yeah well I did notice I mean obviously having heard this and, and reading this separately 
and also hearing other things that you've written before. Yeah. Relationships generally play quite a large part mm-hmm. in your writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something, do you feel that can be the most sort of interesting thing for a character to explore? Or is it more a belief that kind of personal development is driven by relationships with others? It's my own narcissism. It's my <laughs> own interest in my relationships. And uh, the fiction that I write is thinly veiled. <laughs> you discover yourself in your relationship with others. Um, and I, you know, I'm kind of aware for any family that might listen to this that they, they, it's my own stuff. It's And, and I... I love uh, writing as a vehicle for that. Mm. What's interesting about our writing group, I think, and in this very podcast, is that it opens up a rela- it opens up the relationships that I I share bits of myself which remain hidden, <laughs> but very close to the surface. Um, so, the the why I like fiction more, I think, than writing the dialogue or doing a play, um, is that I I can bring in the psychological, the thought, the, the stuff that's inside more easily. Yeah. I suppose you're right. It's very hard to write psychology for the stage, isn't it? Because the character's <laughs> got to put that across for you, but you can't explicitly say things so mm. much, and you can't put them across in a way that's uh, as clear for the audience, I guess. Oh, it's a different skill. One that, sadly, I don't possess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe eventually. Yeah. Eventually. But no, I, I like that. I like that very much. I like the the difficulty in this particular relationship. Because mm. uh, I, I think that there's a an eagerness for people to simplify and dumb down how people interact with each other and how those relationships can help someone, whether it's developing emotionally, whether it's developing physically in appearance and things. Mm. People, it's very easy to to discount how how big an impact that can have on somebody mm-hmm. and I like in this one that the character is appreciating how big that impact is and, and working that through in their own mind in mm-hmm. these quite pivotal moments for them as well yeah I think that one thing I saw is it does it kind of it showcases your dexterity for switching things up a little bit and for changing around I mean you've got sort of a fearsome patriarch who's become a frail old man mm-hmm. you've got a, a child who occasionally kind of hated their father uh, has now grown sentimental about what's left behind and, and what there'll be. Mm. Um, was it, I mean, was it challenging to to keep it switched up that way? Or that kind of, or was it like a, a great opportunity to showcase how someone can have these two different sides? Showcase is an interesting word. I um, I didn't set out to show off skill but I think the way I read, I'm interested in that, just those deep moments of being and the way I read, there is a conscious performance of this is my tender, this is the tender stuff. There's a very fine line between the craft of writing and the content. And I enjoy the craft, of course. I probably more see see the writing as a vehicle to let myself be known craft comes into it of course it's nice to uh, you know this is an exaggeration of parts of my life and people in my life and uh, I quite like to get get people's heartstrings pulled yeah uh, there's a slight ma- magician type quality it's, it's just like you know I can't oh, look, look at me bringing this out here 
but I think it's a desperation to be known. And at the same time, I could have just written a, a diary entry and said, this is what it's like for yeah. me. Um, so it's an interesting desperation to be known, but there's a certain element of hiding as well. Yeah. Because you can be quite true to yourself in what you write, but also there's, there's a, no matter what it is, yeah. there is that veneer of, this is fiction. And if anyone who didn't know you or anything else could read that story and take, or any story for that matter, and take the whole thing yeah. as, this is entirely fiction. Yeah. Or you could pick up a, you know, any, any book off any shelf and think, hang on, how much of the author is in this? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the powerful things about prose is that you have that, that kind of, it could be either, you don't know which one it is, mm-hmm. but you allow the reader to make the assumption. Yeah. Uh, hiding in plain sight, I think, is yeah. what, I, what I enjoy about writing, art, music, the, the psychology of that, really desperately wanting to be known, but wanting to hide at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so along with this, and I know I've, I've heard some of your shorter pieces before, and I've mentioned that stage play, I know that you're, you're working on a novel at the moment, mm-hmm. which we don't have to share today, but maybe at one point in the future, who knows? have a retrospective episode um but with with that in mind and it's a question i tend to ask everybody because i it, it fascinates me when it comes to those different types of writing the sort of much longer form of a novel yeah you know a, a stage you've already made your, your 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 views on that stage part quite clear anyway and then that compared to the shorts do you have a a preferred method to put those stories across out of those ones that you choose or do you think the story dictates what it needs to be <laughs> I do feel it's a bit more like the story. That was a, an image uh, based on the hand, um, which seems kind of like a motif feel for me. With the novel, um, I really wanted to develop the complexities of overlapping relationships between couples. And so that naturally kind of grew and, and grows into into a bigger piece. Um there's a certain amount of stamina. Um, it's quite exhausting to bear the weight of uh, writing a lot of words as well. And I think if I want a quick emotional fix, I get really excited about a chapter. There's actually the discipline of, all right, it's great to have these amazing windows. So I've got to put some bricks in here and then I need to build up the foundations there and the sun's coming through the roof. So I probably ought to patch that in. It's a yeah. <laughs> It's a really interesting house, but it's a le- it's, it takes you a long time to decide what pictures to put where or whatever. <laughs> That's me metaphor. But well, I, I like that metaphor. I think you're right. I think it is. As we sat in your most glorious house, <laughs> it just comes to mind. No, I, I like the idea of, I, I think it's a, it's a very good metaphor, the idea that there's a lot of, when it comes to writing, there's a lot of things that are nice to do. And there's nice things to put in there. And, you know, and I'm the same. And I've, I've mentioned before, I've worked on novels, I've worked on things, and they've never really gone anywhere because I don't have the patience, I don't have the, yeah. the dedication that you need to have to produce something like that. Yep. Because I get bogged down in, this is a nice bit, I'll work on this bit. And then it's like, okay, well, I need to write three chapters that get there. Yeah. Well, I don't really want to do that, yeah. so I'll go back to this. So, no, I can see that. That's why most of my work is less than a thousand words, because it's very hard to get distracted from that, generally. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, I enjoyed that story a lot, and I enjoyed... I, in, in general, I enjoy your exploration of relationships and emotion. I think that you have a, a very considered, a very careful way of doing it, which never comes across as uh, overly bleeding heart. 
It never comes across <laughs> as cold. It never, and you always manage to find that quite nice balance in the middle, which is why I'm a fan. And I think that, you know, whether it's to be showcased or not, I think, you know, I hope that it will be more so because I, because I enjoy it very much. Thank you. There's a certain amount of finding some confidence in my voice, I think, uh, which needs to happen and grow, I think, in order for me to develop, put my writing out there more. Mm. It has been a, a private habit behind closed doors in firmly shut books. Um, and the group is the first time that I've shared and shown shown it, actually. And it's been great. Yeah. Well, long may it continue. Thank you, sir. Yeah. But I want to say thank you very much for, for being here today, being a part of this. Uh, thank you for your story. And I do hope that we'll find a way to get that out more into the world and we can see more of those because you've got great stories to tell. So mm-hmm. if you do, make sure you tell me so I can find them. Cheers, Dave. Yes, thank you. Thank you to Lilith Freud Distillery. That yes. was a nice little smoky drop too. It was. Um, yeah. A nice wee dram. Indeed. <laughs> but thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners. And we will see you all again next time. Bye.